I have uh, had conversations with many people where they have talked to me and they have uh, expressed uh, thinking that they are either too bad or too much of a sinner for God to care about them. Uh, they don't use the words, uh, you know, forgive. Uh, very often they use the word, you know, that they, they express that, you know, that they feel they've been too bad, that God doesn't even care about them. Uh, or else people who feel that they've engaged in some sort of sin and God has washed their hands of them, that he doesn't want anything to do with them anymore, and, uh, you know, that, that uh, he has pretty much shut them out. Um, you know, that's just not true. That's just not true. God persists with us even through our foolishness. Even through our sin, God persists with us. We wander. Uh, he, he persists. You know, we get discouraged. He still persists. We get weary. He continues to persist with us. We get tired of the struggle. He continues to persist with us. We think he gives up, but he persists. His heart drives him to persist with us and to persist for us. Let's pray. We're going to turn to the passage that um, I think really opens this up. Father, thank you for your grace and your grace that does not quit, that does not walk away, that does not shut us out. Your grace that does not say uh, only some of you folks, but the rest of you just forget it. Uh, Your grace that continues to be there, your grace that persists. Teach us from your word. Help us to see, to understand your heart a little bit more and to... Uh, Well, I was going to say fall in love with you a little bit more, and uh, really that's not uh, too too, uh, shy of what we really need. We really need to be drawn deeper into your heart, your love, your grace. Use your word toward that end, we pray, and your touch. Thank you for your presence with us. We ask and pray and thank in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in John chapter 6, so turn there, uh, page 982 in the Pew Bible. Uh, John chapter 6, and the, uh, we're really going to focus in, uh, you know, the part where, where uh, you know, I, I see where he persists really unfolds itself more in verses 32 through 40. But to be able to do that properly, we're going to need to see the context that leads up to that. Uh, you know, that leads up to these, you know, those verses there. So as we think, because the context not just lays the foundation, it's pretty hard to rip those other verses right out of this. Look at the very first part of the chapter there. And at the first part of the chapter, it tells us, you know, about this large crowd that was following Jesus. Now, it tells us in verse 2 that they were following him because they saw him heal many sick people because of what he had done with many sick people. You know, so it tells us right there why this large crowd was gathered, what it was that drew them and pulled them in. Now, they were outside of town, and so it tells us that Jesus went up 
on the side of the mountain a little bit to elevate himself to be able to uh, teach as many as possible, to be able to project, if you will. Uh, one other time, if you recall, Luke chapter 5, he was when stepped into a boat and went out a little ways from the folks so that more people would be able to hear. Here it says he goes up on the side of the mountain a little bit uh, so that he could teach a large crowd so that they could uh, could hear him. And verse 4 seems to indicate that this crowd was a little extra large because of the Passover. Those who would be traveling into town for Passover, one of the feasts in which uh, the, the Jews would try to get back into Jerusalem and try to get to the temple. And, uh, you know, verse 4 tells us, you know, that this was Passover time. So you have this larger crowd, some of whom might even have been traveling by into town as Jesus was doing this and been drawn by by the crowd and, and what they were seeing and hearing. Now, in the midst of this crowd here, uh, it, it just stuck out to me that Jesus is still focused on instructing his disciples. He was still focused on instructing those who would carry on uh, the ministry after he was crucified, after you know he was resurrected and then ascended. Uh, there, these who were charged with carrying on that ministry, it was sharing it with being able to, to build it. And he brings up the challenge to them then, notice, of, of, of feeding such a large crowd. He had compassion on them, and he wanted to feed them. Now, the responses, we have the two responses, which we are probably a little bit familiar with. Philip looks, and he says, this is impossible. This is, it, is, it ain't going to happen. It can't. There's way too many people. Send them off somewhere else. Let them go find some place to eat. Let them you know, mosey on down the road a little bit and see what they can find on their own, because there's no way we can take care of all of these people. Philip just saw that impossibility of it. Now, Andrew, on the other hand, he says, well, you know, we have a... We have this, this boy's lunch here, uh, but he also expresses the fact that this is an inadequate amount to feed so many people. He says, we have, we have this lunch, but what's that among so many, you know, among so many people here? Uh, how could we ever do it? And that leads Jesus into feeding thousands there miraculously by multiplying the five pieces of bread and two fish. It seems to me, as you read that, that that miracle happened as he broke them. That as he was breaking them, it's almost like, you know, you got this fish in, you know, until he picks up the next one. He's getting a lot more than one fish worth of fish out of the fish. Kind of fishy, isn't it? Uh, and, you know, uh, and he's, uh, he's breaking off the bread, you know, and it's just, and it's, it seems that it's in his hands that this miracle actually takes place, which I think is kind of a cool thing. Because here the disciples are up there, and he is breaking this off, and they're watching this. They're seeing this happen. You know, and, and the, the, uh, just the, the reality of, of that, um, it is one of the I told you about that movie we watched last night. One of the scenes in the movie comes up and it's after Jesus was resurrected. And now everything in the movie isn't isn't in the Bible. But the the picture here I thought was pretty cool. A leper comes, you know, a leper is there and he doesn't come to Jesus. This leper is being kind of beaten out of town. And Jesus goes up to to this leper, and the disciples just are kind of standing back there. And uh, there's a Roman soldier with it, and uh, and the guy, one of the disciples, says, uh, you know, says to this Roman soldier, "We've seen this before." 
And it was so cool. I mean, it was just so cool. The, the confidence that they had displayed at that point. This is one of the times in which, that, in which confidence would be built in these guys. They are standing there seeing him breaking this. And, I mean, just thinking. I mean, you see him pick up one fish and start to break this. And all of a sudden you have this tray full of stuff. And, uh, you know, they, they, he takes this lunch and he gives them literally, uh, you know, a buffet of food. Uh, as long as you like fish and bread. A uh, buffet, of, uh, an overabundance. Ginny and I were driving uh, yesterday uh, up Lima Road, and, and you might be able to tell I was a little hungry when we were doing it because I was noticing all the restaurants. And I said, oh, you know, it looks like, uh, what's that st- it's the steakhouse there by... Uh, not Longhorn, whatever it is, the one by Costco. I said, oh, whatever that is there, it looks real busy. And then I looked across the street and I said, oh, Golden Corral looks real busy. I said, well, I like their food. She said, you do? I said, well, yeah, there's lots of it. Uh, you know, this is, here's, here's, here's the picture, you know. He had this, he had this boy's lunch and now there's lots of food there. You know, there's lots of things going on. You know, and to emphasize this then for the disciples, to emphasize this, when the meal is over, Jesus sends him out to pick up the scraps of what was left over. Twelve basketfuls, it says. There were twelve disciples. So each of the disciples then goes out and, and picks up more than what they began with. More than what they began with. Jesus, I think, is just really driving home to them the point and the reality of who he is. And it says they picked up 12 basketfuls. Verse 14 tells us, it gives us an indication there that the people also realized that they were being fed by a miracle. You see, this wasn't just for the disciples. It tells us there in verse 14, the people also realized, so they wanted to try to force Jesus to be king. You know, the leader that they hoped would free them from, you know, from Roman occupation. The leader that would reestablish the the Jewish nation, the Jewish folks as a nation, as a powerful, independent nation. And they were hoping that, you know, that they could push him forward to be this king, this one that they were waiting for, this one that they were hoping for. Now, Jesus knew it wasn't time yet, so it says that he withdrew away from the crowd for a while. You know, that he, he withdrew from them. Well, the disciples pack things up and they get into a boat. They head out across the sea, even though it was dark. It says, you know, at sunset, as the sun was setting, and it tells us that it was dark even as they went out on the water. Now, several of them were experienced fishermen. And as experienced fishermen, you know, they seemed pretty confident that they could get where they were heading. Uh, you don't want to be out on a boat with me in, in the dark. because <laughs> It just ain't going to happen. Uh, you know, uh, you know, so here they are, and, and they're out. Now, they get caught up in a storm, we're told. They get caught up in a storm, and uh, uh, things were going poorly. Let's just put it that way. Things were going poorly you know, as they were out there in the storm. So in response to their need, then they saw several miracles again from Jesus. It says that he walks out to them on the water. He walks on the water and goes out to them. Now, they get a little freaked out, which... 
I get, you know, uh, and, and so the, he walks out to them on the water, though, and then he calms the storm also. So not only did he walk out there, then he calms the storm. And we're told here that it says then immediately they were at the destination they were heading to. Some see that as a separate miracle. Some see it just as kind of a summary statement. I, I have no problems with Jesus doing miracles. You know, he walks out there on the water to them and he calmed the storm. Why couldn't he immediately get them to where they were going? Well, this is what it's told. Well, then in the morning... In the morning, you know, those in the crowd from the previous day, they searched for and they found Jesus. And they were hoping to hang with him again. Now, Jesus calls them out. Look at verse 26. Jesus calls them out there. It says, Jesus answered, I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Now, in the Gospel of John, he uses that word sign to describe a miracle that was meant to show that Jesus was the Messiah. He uses that sign that, you know, it's something that points to Jesus as the promised Savior. And that's how he uses that. And, and here, you know, as Jesus is, as John records what Jesus said, John uses, God leads John to use that word sign again here. That, you know, he says, you, you are not looking for me because you saw the signs. You are not looking for me because you saw those things that revealed to you that I was the Messiah. You are not looking for me because you saw those things that pointed to me as the promised Savior that was coming. Jesus is telling him here, you know, you dudes are looking for me because you benefited from a miracle, not because you think I'm the Messiah. That's not why you're coming. Now, that's revealed even more fully as the discussion continues. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they ask. There's our normal question. What, what do I need to do? What do I have to do? You know, do we want to do? Uh, verse 29, Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Believe, that just seems a little too easy for us. Verse 30, what sign then are you going to do? Uh, I, he just told them. What they needed to do was to believe. They go on, what sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? My goodness, it's like they're, you know, like, like they're waiting for this guy to do tricks. Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, just that is, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see, they wanted more bread to eat. They weren't looking for him because they thought he was the Messiah. They were looking for him because of what he did for them. They were looking for him, for Jesus, because of, of they wanted, well, here, more bread. Too often, too often we pursue Jesus because of what we want rather than who he is. We can look at them and we can say, how goofy, how foolish. But there is a huge difference. There is a huge difference when coming to him, you know, because of what we want rather than who he is. We may not say, we may not be so crass as to say, what are you going to perform? You know, what miracles are you going to do? We may not be so crass as to word it that way. But sometimes in our minds and our heads, we are going to him because of what we want rather than who he is. You 
you know, tragically, the people were not yet seeing who Jesus really is. Now, it's always tragic when people don't see who Jesus is, even today. I mean, even today, that is, that is still a, a, a tragedy. If they don't see that Jesus is the Messiah, then they will die in their sin. The only way we have forgiveness of sin is because of Jesus' broken body, shed blood, which we just remembered and looked at in communion. And that is why we are forgiven. We are not forgiven because we're good people. We are not forgiven because of uh, we joined a church. We are not forgiven because we go to church. Again, being a church member, I think, is important. Uh, being you know in church, I think those things are important. But that's not what saves us. We're not saved because we take communion. I think taking communion and remembering his sacrifice for us is an important thing. But that doesn't save us that doesn't add anything to us we're not saved because we are baptized again i think it's an important expression of our commitment to christ but that is not what saves us you see it's not because of something we do it's because of who he is and we need to remember it's because of who he is that we are saved you know and if people don't realize that they will die in their sin now if people die in their sin then they will continue on their way to hell, which all people are headed to without Christ. Without Christ, all people are headed to hell, away from God, because of their sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, How many? All. All. Every single one. And every single one falls short of the glory of God. And every single one has has done something to separate them from God. Well, I wasn't as bad as so-and-so. Well, okay, so maybe you weren't. But, you know, uh, that's not the point. The point is that sin is there. Uh, And people say sometimes, well, you know, know, that innocent person was killed. They weren't, I, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but they weren't innocent. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And if they don't come to realize Christ is the Savior, the Messiah, the one who died for their sin, they will continue on their way to hell, living eternally separated from God. That is tragic. Don't just get the idea, gee, that, that's really too bad. No, it is tragic. You know, uh, you know don't, don't just think, you know, that, that, that well, you know, that, that's unfortunate. No, it is tragic. It is tragic when people don't realize who Jesus is. The people here, they were religious. Notice they talked about their ancestors. You know, what are you going to do? Just, uh, our fathers ate, ate this manna in the wilderness and they're talking about you know, their, what their ancestors did, eating that manna, eating that bread from heaven, referring to God's miraculous provision for his people when he, when he led them out of slavery in Egypt and he miraculously provided for them there during that exodus. Uh, so they were religious people. Now, today we can talk to religious people. And really, if you're talking to religious people, you're already partway there in helping them see who Jesus is. You are already partway there because they believe in God. And if they believe in God, you are really already partway there in helping them see who Jesus is. If they believe in God, that's good. You know, that's a good start. And, you know, and, and if they believe that God has worked in history as these folks here did. You see, God worked in history. He fed our fathers manna 
You see, this is another good step because they see that God works in the lives of people. And so, you, you know, it's a good thing to be able to help them. You know, but, but simply believing in God and simply believing that God intervenes isn't enough. Uh, you know, they need to know Jesus as Savior. They need to know who Jesus is. They need to know the reality of what he's done. So Jesus persists with these folks here and he tells them, you know, and uses that knowledge that they have. He uses it to unfold a little bit more for these folks who he really is. He, he, he unfolds for them more of who his heart is. Look at verse 32. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, these people here, they were really misunderstanding. But Jesus persists with them. He continues with them, helping them to see who he really is. One of the, one of the great things as I was reading this, you know, it's just a reminder for me is, you know, that our misunderstanding does not stop him. Now, if I were putting a sermon outline together this morning, I would have added that, but it was already in the computer, so it's not there. You know, our understanding does not stop him. Do you realize that? Do you realize what that means? Because we misunderstand him. That doesn't stop him. It doesn't stop him. He persists with us. You know, here they, they were struggling, but he persists with them. He tells them Moses didn't give them anything. It was from God. They were misunderstanding. But he persists with them. Their misunderstanding didn't stop him. He says Moses didn't give him anything. It was from God. Uh, and, and what came from Moses, you know, what came from, you know, in Moses' time, it was temporary. And it only met a physical need. He gave them manna from heaven to feed them. And it was a temporary thing. And it was a physical thing. Notice in verse 32, though. Here it, it says, Jesus says, the Father gives. Present tense. Present tense, continuing on. Uh, uh, the perfect tense it continues on he gives he still gives that real bread from heaven even today he still gives that real bread from heaven then he says for the bread of god is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world here again is where their misunderstanding becomes very apparent it becomes very apparent to us as we look back you see but they were in the midst of it They were in the middle of it. When we know Christ sometimes and we don't understand how those we're talking to don't quite get it, it's because, you see, they're not there yet. We have the rest of the story. We have the other information. And they don't. And they didn't hear. Their response, you know, sir, give us this bread always. 
Much like the Samaritan woman at the well. I don't know if you remember the Samaritan woman at the well when Jesus was speaking to her. Um, you know, one of the things Jesus said, John chapter 4, says, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. Speaking about the water from the well. You drink the water, you know, from the earth. He says they're going to get thirsty again. He goes on, he says, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst again, ever. In fact, the water that I give him will become a well of water springing up with him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to come here to draw water. The Samaritan woman here in chapter 4, the crowd here in in chapter 6, they both focused only on earthly needs. They were both only looking at earthly needs and the things, you know, of this earth. Jesus wanted them, wants us to go much deeper in the spiritual needs. So what does he do? He persists with them. He persists with us. You know, so much of our praying, so much of our, phys- of, 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 our, of our seeking is focused on physical needs. You know, so much, so much of our prayer, so much of what we seek, all centers around physical needs. You know, even, even for ourselves. You know, we pray that much for others. We pray that oftentimes for ourselves. Even, you know, now that's not necessarily wrong. You know, you have a physical need, you know, pray. And it says, you know, if you have a need, that you, you pray. You call for the elders of the church to pray. So there's nothing wrong with praying for those things. But I, I think it, it, it falls too far short. What happens, you know, if that's the only focus, you know, if that's all it is, you know, then, then, then that's really quite shallow. If that's where you stop, if that's your major prayer, if that's the major thing you pray about, it's really quite shallow and quite temporary. Think about the model prayer that Jesus gave us, the one we sometimes refer to as the Our Father. The first words of that prayer, you know. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy, highly honored be your name. Uh, you know, your kingdom, your rule. Your reign is king, that your kingdom and your reign, that that come. Your will be done, what you see as best, not what we see as best, but your will, not my will, not my short-sighted misunderstanding of things, but your long view, your complete picture, your will be done on this earth, here and now, just as it is in heaven. That we, your people, those who realize and see that you are our Father, that, that it is your kingdom, that we will be, begin to live under your kingdom and, and thereby bring some, somehow a semblance of a picture of what it means to live in your kingdom, to live by your will, that that would be done here on earth. And then there's just one physical request. Give us this day our daily bread. Physical. It's one thing, an expression of that dependence upon you, Lord, that dependence that I have toward you. Then it returns to the spiritual aspects again. Forgive us as we forgive others. That recognition that we need forgiveness. We need forgiveness from you, Lord, and we need forgiveness from you, and we need to forgive others because you have forgiven us. And I know what I've done. And I know what I've been thinking. And I know what evil can lurk in my heart. And you have forgiven me. And I need to forgive others because you have forgiven me. Because my life has been changed and transformed by your forgiveness. 
So forgiveness should flow from me as well. And then to keep us from temptation. Lead us not into evil. We're weak. I need your help. Don't let me get near evil because I am so foolish that I would give in to it. Please lead me not into temptation. I am not strong enough to stand this on my own. Keep me from temptation. Keep me from that. I need you to help me. And then he says, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So be it. May it be according to your will, Lord. Now, even though they don't get it right away, Jesus persists. He sticks with it. He wants them to understand. He says, I am the bread of life. No one comes to no one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. You see, here's the thing. Jesus wants us to understand him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to have that relationship with him. He wants us to understand him, to know him deeply, personally, intimately, as one who cares, as one who gave his life, as one who is that God above all creation, yet so tender and caring enough that he deals with us personally. And then it comes to that verse that reveals his heart to us, verse 37. Everyone the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, Dane Ortland in his book, I think he does a great job opening up this verse for us. If you haven't read these chapters yet, I'd encourage you to do that. There was one more copy of the book out there. Um, if nobody grabbed it and you need one, you can look there. But it's online also. He does a great job. But look at the focus of this verse here. It's Jesus Look at what it says. Three times he mentions coming to him. He says, me, you know, me. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me. And he says, I, I will never cast out. Me, I. When we think that God has left us or that we're, we're, we're too bad or that we're too inconsistent or that we are, you know, too resistant, what we're doing is looking at the situation as if it all depends on us. Us. That's not what Jesus is saying to look at. It's not true. It doesn't depend on us. This verse starts out with Jesus directing our attention, attention to the one who really matters, him. He is the central focus of this verse. He is the central focus of our forgiveness. He is the central focus of our salvation. It is him it is not what we do. It's what he has done. We add nothing to what he has done. It's about him and what he has done, not about what we have done. He persists in our salvation through the pain on the cross, through that sacrifice on the cross, through trying to get us to grasp, hold, and understand. He gave his life for our sins so that we don't have to. He gave his life for us. Notice what he says. This is available to 
everyone. Everyone who comes to him. Every single one who comes to him. No one will be turned away. Not one single person who comes to him will be turned away. No one is too bad for Jesus to accept. No one. I like the way that John Bunyan put it in his book. Uh, Dane Ortland updated it a little bit, a little bit of the wording in, in his uh, Gentle and Lowly, and I just want to update it just a wee bit more. Uh, you know, we come and we say, I'm a great sinner, but I will never cast you out, Jesus says. But I've sinned a long time, you say. I will never cast you out, says Jesus. But I am a hard-hearted sinner. I've done terrible things, you say. But I will never cast you out, says Jesus. But I'm a backsliding sinner, you say. But I will never cast you out, says Jesus. But I've served Satan all my life, you say. But I will never cast you out, says Jesus. But I have not been merciful, you say, but I will never cast you out, says Jesus. But I have done nothing good in me, you say. I will never cast you out, says Jesus. Whatever excuse, whatever reason you think you have, I will never cast you out, says Jesus. That word never... That word, that, that word that's translated never, that word means never. That word means never, ever. Never, ever, 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 never, ever, ever, never, never, ever, never will I cast you out. You see, it doesn't depend on you, says Jesus. It depends on me, not on you. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, God will not help you sin, and he will not help you walk away from him. You've heard me say that before. And that's true. He is not going to help you destroy yourself. He is not going to help you sin. But don't confuse that with thinking that he has left you. Don't confuse that with thinking that he has turned his back on you. Don't confuse that with thinking that he has washed his hands on you, of you. He persists. Everyone the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Everyone, every single one, he won't turn anyone away will come to me. When God calls, they will come. Ephesians chapter 2 says, <clears throat> For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not from work so that no one can boast. It is of God no man can boast in what he did himself. When they come, he says that he will never cast them out. Never cast them out. 
some who falsely come to Jesus, some who come, you know, and they're religious, you know, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that in your name? Uh, no, he says, away from me, I never knew you. Why didn't, didn't we work for this, Lord? Didn't we, didn't we put in the time? Didn't we put in the effort? You know, and he, they, they, they don't stick it out, but they fall away by their own accord. Why? Because they never truly believed, because they never truly came to him. This happens even here. If, if, you, if you, you, you look down near the end of the chapter, some of the disciples left. Some of the disciples walked away because they said, this is too hard. Why? Because they were looking at what they had to do. Not at what Jesus did. It says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. He persists. He persists. Our misunderstandings do not deter him. He persists. Our sin does not negate his will. He persists. Our inabilities are not too much for him. He still persists. Our weakness is met by his strength. He persists. And until our emptiness is conquered by his love, he persists with us. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You see, he cares. He understands. And he persists. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to be with Him. And He persists with us. He doesn't close His, his heart to us. He opens His life. Father, thank You for that gift of life that is found only in Christ. Jesus, what you have done on that cross for us as we've remembered in communion, as we think, as we remember in our life what you have done for us on that cross. And a scripture that reminds us, he who has not withheld his own son from us, he won't withhold any good thing from us. You persist because you want us to know you. You want us to understand you. You want us to have that that great, open, loving relationship with you. You want us to know that we are forgiven because of your sacrifice, not because of our works, not because of what we have done. Our response to you is because of a changed and transformed heart, but that salvation and that gift only comes from you, only comes from the reality of knowing that you are God and Jesus that you went to the cross and that you gave your life so we don't have to give our life. You gave our, your life so we can live forgiven and free from sin. Don't ever let us forget that. Don't ever let us be so foolish as to think you have washed your hands of us, that you have turned away, that we have been so bad that we've done something that your death didn't cover. That's a lie from the devil. Don't let us believe that lie, but help us to live in your truth, that everyone who comes to you, you will not turn away. You will not cast aside. You will not cast out. But you love us enough to love us through the ugly times in our life. To love us through the unloving times in our life.
to love us through those foolish, stupid times in which we thought we had it all together and forgot what a great and loving God you are. Thank you that you don't stop being that great loving God because we're foolish, but that you love us. Love us back to yourselves. Help us to always turn and come to you. Thank you for that opportunity, for that grace, for that gift of life in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.